Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and a brand new story. This one is called The Beasts of Tarzan. It's number three in Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan series and just as full of action as his first two, both of which we have done here. Burroughs was the best action fantasy writer of his time, hands down, and his books are still sought after and enjoyed today. The Beasts of Tarzan is pure escapism and can be best enjoyed as such. It delivers on drama in full. The story begins a year after the conclusion of the return of Tarzan. Tarzan, Lord Greystoke, and Jane have had a son, whom they have named Jack. Tarzan has spent much time building an estate home on the Waziri lands in Uziri, Africa, but has returned to his ancestral estate in London for the rainy season. Tarzan's adversaries from the previous novel, Nicholas Rokoff and Alexis Polovich, escape prison and kidnap Jack, the Greystoke heir. Their trap is elaborate and insidious, leading both Tarzan and Jane to be kidnapped as well. Rokop exiles Tarzan on a jungle island, informing him that Jack will be left with a cannibal tribe to be raised as one of their own, while Jane's fate is to be left to his imagination. Using his jungle skill and primal intelligence, Tarzan wins the help of Sheeta, the vicious panther, a tribe of great apes led by the intelligent Akut, and a native warrior, Mugambi. With their aid, Tarzan reaches the mainland and begins a lengthy pursuit to find Jane, who is actively engineering her own extrication, and Jack. And now, our story. The Beasts of Tarzan. Chapter 1. Kidnapped. The entire affair is shrouded in mystery, said Darnot. I have it on the best of authority that neither the police nor the special agents of the general staff have the faintest conception of how it was accomplished. All they know, all that anyone knows, is that Nicholas Rokoff has escaped. John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, he who had been Tarzan of the Apes, sat in silence in the apartments of his friend, Lieutenant Paul Darnot, in Paris, gazing meditatively at the toe of his immaculate boot. His mind revolved many memories, recalled by the escape of his arch-enemy from the French military prison to which he had been sentenced for life upon the testimony of the ape-man. He thought of the lengths to which Rokoff had once gone to compass his death, and he realized that what the man had already done would doubtless be as nothing by comparison with what he would wish and plot to do now that he was again free. Tarzan had recently brought his wife and infant son to London to escape the discomforts and dangers of the rainy season upon their vast estate in Uziri, the land of the savage Waziri warriors whose broad African domains the ape-man had once ruled. He had run across the channel for a brief visit with his old friend, but the news of the Russians' escape had already cast a shadow upon his outing, so that though he had but just arrived, he was already contemplating an immediate return to London. "'It is not that I fear for myself, Paul,' he said at last. "'Many times in the past I have thwarted Rokoff's designs upon my life, but now there are others to consider. Unless I misjudge the man, he would more quickly strike at me through my wife or son than directly at me, for he doubtless realizes that in no other way could he inflict greater anguish upon me. I must go back to them at once, and remain with them until Rokoff is recaptured or dead.' As these two talked in Paris, two other men were talking together in a little cottage upon the outskirts of London. Both were dark, sinister-looking men. One was bearded, but the other, whose face wore the pallor of long confinement within doors, had but a few days' growth of black beard upon his face. It was he who was speaking. "'You must needs shave off that beard of yours, Alexis,' he said to his companion. "'With it he would recognize you at the instant. We must separate here in the hour.' "'and when we meet again upon the deck of the Kincaid, "'let us hope that we shall have with us two honored guests "'who little anticipate the pleasant voyage we have planned for them. "'In two hours I should be upon my way to Dover with one of them, "'and by tomorrow night, if you follow my instructions carefully, 
"'you should arrive with the other, "'provided, of course, "'that he returns to London as quickly as I presume he will. "'There should be both profit and pleasure, "'as well as other good things to reward our efforts, "'my dear Alexis. "'Thanks to the stupidity of the French, "'they have gone to such lengths "'to conceal the fact of any escape for these many days.' "'that I have had ample opportunity to work out every detail of our little adventure, "'so carefully that there is little chance of slightest hitch occurring to mar our prospects. "'And now, good-bye, and good luck.' Three hours later a messenger mounted the steps to the apartment of Lieutenant Darnot. "'A telegram for Lord Greystoke,' he said to the servant, who answered his summons. "'Is he here?' The man answered in the affirmative, and signing for the message, carried it within to Tarzan, "'who was already preparing to depart for London. "'Tarzan tore open the envelope, "'and as he read, his face went white. "'Read it, Paul,' he said, "'handing the slip of paper to Darnot. "'It has come already.' "'The Frenchman took the telegram and read. "'Jack stolen from the garden through complicity of new servant. "'Come at once. Jane.' "'As Tarzan leaped from the roadster "'that had met him at the station "'and ran up the steps to his London townhouse, "'he was met at the door by a dry-eyed "'but almost frantic woman. "'Quickly Jane Porter Clayton narrated "'all that she had been able to learn "'of the theft of the boy. "'The baby's nurse had been wheeling him in the sunshine "'on the walk before the house "'when a closed taxicab drew up at the corner of the street. "'The woman had paid but passing attention to the vehicle, "'merely noting that it discharged no passenger.' but stood at the curb with the motor running as though waiting for a fare from the residence before which it had stopped. Almost immediately the new houseman, Carl, had come running from the Greystoke house, saying that the girl's mistress wished to speak with her for a moment, and that she was to leave little Jack in his care until she returned. The woman said that she entertained not the slightest suspicion of the man's motives until she had reached the doorway of the house, when it occurred to her to warn him not to turn the carriage so as to permit the sun to shine in the baby's eyes. As she turned about to call this to him, she was somewhat surprised to see that he was wheeling the carriage rapidly toward the corner, and at the same time she saw the door of the taxicab open and a swarthy face framed for a moment in the aperture. Intuitively, the danger to the child flashed upon her, and with a shriek she dashed down the steps and up the walk toward the taxicab, into which Carl was now handing the baby to the swarthy one within. Just before she reached the vehicle, Carl leaped in beside his confederate, slamming the door behind him. At the same time, the chauffeur attempted to start his machine, but it was evident that something had gone wrong, as though the gears refused to mesh, and the delay caused by this, while he pushed the lever into reverse and backed the car a few inches before again attempting to go ahead, gave the nurse time to reach the side of the taxicab. Leaping to the running board, she had attempted to snatch the baby from the arms of the stranger, and here, screaming and fighting, she had clung to her position even after the taxicab had got under way. Nor was it until the machine had passed the Greystoke residence at good speed that Carl, with a heavy blow to her face, had succeeded in knocking her to the pavement. Her screams had attracted servants and members of the families from residences nearby, as well as from the Greystoke home. Lady Greystoke had witnessed the girl's brave battle and had herself tried to reach the rapidly passing vehicle, but had been too late. That was all that anyone knew nor did Lady Greystoke dream of the possible identity of the man at the bottom of the plot until her husband told her of the escape of Nicholas Rokoff from the French prison where they had hoped he was permanently confined. As Tarzan and his wife stood planning the wisest course to pursue, the telephone bell rang in the library at their right. Tarzan quickly answered the call in person. "'Lord Greystoke?' asked the man's voice at the other end of the line. "'Yes?' "'Your son has been stolen,' continued the voice." "'and I alone may help you to recover him. "'I am conversant with the plot of those who took him, 
"'In fact, I was a party to it, "'and was to share in the reward. "'But now they're trying to ditch me, "'and to be quits with them I will aid you to recover him "'on condition that you will not prosecute me "'for my part in the crime. "'What do you say?' "'If you lead me to where my son is hidden,' "'replied the ape-man, "'you need fear nothing from me.' "'Good,' replied the other, "'but you must come alone to meet me, "'for it is enough that I must trust you. "'I cannot take the chance of permitting others "'to learn my identity.' "'Where and when may I meet you?' asked Tarzan. The other gave the name and location of a public house on the waterfront of Dover, a place frequented by sailors. "'Come,' he concluded, "'about ten o'clock tonight. It would do no good to arrive earlier. Your son will be safe enough in the meantime, and I could then lead you secretly to where he is hidden. But be sure to come alone, and under no circumstances notify Scotland Yard, for I know you well and shall be watching for you.' "'Should any other accompany you, "'or should I see suspicious characters "'who might be agents of the police, "'I shall not meet you, "'and your last chance of recovering your son will be gone.' "'Without more words, the man hung up. "'Tarzan repeated the gist of the conversation to his wife. "'She begged to be allowed to accompany him, "'but he insisted that it might result in the man's "'carrying out his threat of refusing to aid them "'if Tarzan did not come alone, "'and so they parted. "'He to hasten to Dover, and she... "'ostensibly to wait at home "'until he should notify her "'of the outcome of his mission. "'Little did either dream "'of what both were destined "'to pass through "'before they should meet again, "'or the far distant. "'But why anticipate? "'For ten minutes "'after the ape-man had left her, "'Jane Clayton walked restlessly "'back and forth "'across the silken rugs "'of the library. "'Her mother heart ached, "'bereft of its firstborn. "'Her mind was in an anguish "'of hopes and fears.' Though her judgment told her that all would be well were her Tarzan to go alone in accordance with the mysterious stranger's summons, her intuition would not permit her to lay aside suspicion of the gravest dangers to both her husband and her son. The more she thought of the matter, the more convinced she became that the recent telephone message might be a ruse to keep them inactive until the boy was safely hidden away or spirited out of England, or it might be that it had been simply a bait to lure Tarzan into the hands of the implacable Rokoff. With the lodgment of this thought, she stopped in wide-eyed terror. Instantly it became a conviction. She glanced at the great clock ticking the minutes in the corner of the library. It was too late to catch the Dover train that Tarzan was to take. There was another, later, however, that would bring her to the channel port in time to reach the address the stranger had given her husband before the appointed hour. Summoning her maid and chauffeur, she issued instructions rapidly. Ten minutes later she was being whisked through the crowded streets toward the railway station. It was 9.45 that night that Tarzan entered the squalid pub on the waterfront in Dover. As he passed into the evil-smelling room, a muffled figure brushed past him toward the street. "'Come, Lord,' whispered the stranger. The ape-man wheeled about and followed the other into the ill-lit alley, which custom had dignified with the title of thoroughfare. Once outside, the fellow led the way into the darkness, nearer a wharf, where high-paled bales, boxes, and casks cast dense shadows. Here he halted. "'Where is the boy?' asked Greystoke. "'On that small steamer whose lights you can just see yonder,' replied the other. In the gloom Tarzan was trying to peer into the features of his companion, but he did not recognize the man as one whom he had ever before seen. Had he guessed that his guide was Alexis Polvich, he would have realized that naught but treachery lay in the man's heart, and that danger lurked in the path of every move. "'He's unguarded now,' continued the Russian." Those who took him feel perfectly safe from detection, and with the exception of a couple of members of the crew, whom I have furnished with enough gin to silence them effectually for hours, there is none aboard the Kincaid. 
"'We can go aboard, get the child, and return without the slightest fear.' Tarzan nodded. "'Let me be about it, then,' he said. His guide led him to a small boat moored alongside the wharf. The two men entered, and Polovich pulled rapidly toward the steamer. The black smoke issuing from her funnel did not at the time make any suggestion to Tarzan's mind. All his thoughts were occupied with the hope that in a few moments he would again have his little son in his arms. At the steamer's side they found a monkey ladder dangling close above them, and up this the two men crept stealthily. Once on deck they hastened aft to where the Russian pointed to a hatch. "'The boy is hidden there,' he said. "'You had better go down after him, as there is less chance that he would cry in fright than should he find himself in the arms of a stranger.' I will stand on guard here. So anxious was Tarzan to rescue the child that he gave not the slightest thought to the strangeness of all the conditions surrounding the Kincaid. That her deck was deserted, though she had steam up, and from the volume of smoke pouring from her funnel was all ready to get under way, made no impression upon him. With the thought that in another instant he would fold that precious little bundle of humanity in his arms, the ape-man swung down into the darkness below. Scarcely had he released his hold upon the edge of the hatch that the heavy covering fell clattering above him. Instantly he knew that he was the victim of a plot, and that far from rescuing his son, he had himself fallen into the hands of his enemies. Though he immediately endeavored to reach the hatch and lift the cover, he was unable to do so. Striking a match, he explored his surroundings, finding that a little compartment had been partitioned off from the main hold, with the hatch above his head the only means of ingress or egress. It was evident that the room had been prepared for the very purpose of serving as a cell for himself. There was nothing in the compartment and no other occupant. If the child was on board the Kincaid, he was confined elsewhere. For over twenty years, from infancy to manhood, the ape-man had roamed his savage jungle haunts without human companionship of any nature. He had learned at the most impressionable period of his life to take his pleasures and his sorrows as the beasts take theirs. So it was that he neither raved nor stormed against fate, but instead waited patiently for what might next befall him, though not by any means without an eye to doing the utmost to succor himself. To this end he examined his prison carefully, tested the heavy planking that formed its walls, and measured the distance of the hatch above him. And while he was thus occupied there came suddenly to him the vibration of machinery and the throbbing of the propeller. The ship was moving. Where to, and to what fate was it carrying him? and even as these thoughts passed through his mind, there came to his ears above the din of the engines that which caused him to go cold with apprehension. Clear and shrill from the deck above him rang the scream of a frightened woman. We'll return with Chapter 2, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 2, from the Beasts of Tarzan, Marooned. As Tarzan and his guide had disappeared into the shadows upon the dark wharf, the figure of a heavily veiled woman had hurried down the narrow alley to the entrance of the drinking place the two men had just quitted. Here she paused and looked about, and then, as though satisfied that she had at last reached the place she sought, she pushed bravely into the interior of the vile den. A score of half-drunken sailors and wharf rats looked up at the unaccustomed sight of a richly gowned woman in their midst. Rapidly she approached a slovenly barmaid who stared half in envy, half in hate, at her more fortunate sister. "'Have you seen a tall, well-dressed man here, but a minute since?' she asked, who met another and went away with him. The girl answered in the affirmative, but could not tell which way the two had gone. A sailor who had approached to listen to the conversation vouchsafed the information that a moment before, as he had been about to enter the pub, 
he had seen two men leaving it who walked toward the wharf. "'Show me the direction they went,' cried the woman, slipping a coin into the man's hand. The fellow led her from the place, and together they walked quickly toward the wharf and along it until across the water they saw a small boat just pulling into the shadows of a nearby steamer. "'There they be,' whispered the man. Ten pounds if you will find a boat and row me to that steamer,' cried the woman. "'Quick, then,' he replied, "'for we got to go it if we're going to catch the Kincaid before she sails. "'She's had steam up for three hours and just been a-waiting for that one passenger. "'I was a-talking to one of her crew half an hour ago.' "'As he spoke, he led the way to the end of the wharf where he knew another boat lay moored, "'and lowering the woman into it, he jumped in after and pushed off. "'The two were soon scudding over the water.' At the steamer's side, the man demanded his pay, and, without waiting to count out the exact amount, the woman thrust a handful of banknotes into his outstretched hand. A single glance at them convinced the fellow that he had been more than well paid. Then he assisted her up the ladder, holding his skiff close to the ship's side against the chance that this profitable passenger might wish to be taken ashore later. But presently the sound of the donkey engine and the rattle of the steel cable on the hoisting drum proclaimed the fact that the Kincaid's anchor was being raised, and a moment later the waiter heard the propellers revolving and slowly the little steamer moved away from him out into the channel. As he turned to row back to shore, he heard a woman shriek from the ship's deck. "'That's what I calls rotten luck,' he soliloquized. "'I might just as well have had the old bloomin' wad.' When Jane Clayton climbed to the deck of the Kincaid, she found the ship apparently deserted. There was no sign of those she sought, nor of any other aboard, so she went about her search for her husband, and the child she hoped against hope to find there without interruption. Quickly she hastened to the cabin, which was half above and half below deck. As she hurried down the short companion ladder into the main cabin, on either side of which were the smaller rooms occupied by the officers, she failed to note the quick closing of one of the doors before her. She passed the full length of the main room, and then retracing her steps stopped before each door to listen, furtively trying each latch. All was silence, utter silence there, in which the throbbing of her own frightened heart seemed to her overwrought imagination to fill the ship with its thunderous alarm. One by one the doors opened before her touch, only to reveal empty interiors. In her absorption she did not note the sudden activity upon the vessel, the purring of the engines, the throbbing of the propeller. She had reached the last door upon the right now. She was seized from within by a powerful, dark-visaged man and drawn hastily into the stuffy, ill-smelling interior. The sudden shock of fright which the unexpected attack had upon her drew a single piercing scream from her throat. Then the man clapped a hand roughly over the mouth. "'Not until we are farther from land, my dear,' he said. "'Then you may yell your pretty head off.' Lady Greystock turned to look into the leering, bearded face so close to hers. The man relaxed the pressure of his fingers upon her lips, and with a little moan of terror as she recognized him, the girl shrank away from her captor. "'Nicholas Rokoff!' she exclaimed. "'You're a devoted admirer,' replied the Russian, with a low bow. "'My little boy,' she said next, ignoring the terms of endearment. "'Where is he? Let me have him. How could you be so cruel? Even as you, Nicholas Rokoff, cannot be entirely devoid of mercy and compassion. Tell me where he is. Is he aboard this ship? Oh, please, if such a thing as a heart beats within your breast—' "'Take me to my baby.' "'If you do as you are bid, no harm will befall him,' replied Rokoff. "'But remember that it is your own fault that you are here. "'You came aboard voluntarily, and you may take the consequences.' "'I little thought,' he added to himself, 
"'that any such good luck as this would come to me.' "'He went on deck then, "'locking the cabin door upon his prisoner, "'and for several days she did not see him. "'The truth of the matter being that Nicholas Rokoff "'was so poor a sailor that the heavy seas "'the Kincaid encountered from the very beginning of her voyage "'sent the Russian to his berth "'with a bad attack of seasickness. "'During this time her only visitor was an uncouth Swede, "'the Kincaid's unsavory cook, "'who brought her meals to her. "'His name was Sven Anderson, "'his one pride being that his last name, Anderson, "'was spelt with a double S.' The man was tall and raw-boned, with a long yellow moustache, an unwholesome complexion, and filthy nails. The very sight of him with one grimy thumb buried deep in the lukewarm stew, that seemed, from the frequency of its repetition, to constitute the pride of his culinary art, was sufficient to take away the girl's appetite. His small, blue, close-set eyes never met hers squarely. There was a shiftiness of his whole appearance that even found expression in the cat-like manner of his gait, and to it all a sinister suggestion was added by the long, slim knife that always rested at his waist, slipped to the greasy cord that supported his soiled apron. Ostensibly it was but an implement of his calling, but the girl could never free herself of the conviction that it would require less provocation to witness it put to other and less harmless uses. His manner toward her was surly, yet she never failed to meet him with a pleasant smile and a word of thanks when he brought her food to her, though more often than not she hurled the bulk of it to the tiny cabin port the moment that the door closed behind him. During the days of anguish that followed Jane Clayton's imprisonment, but two questions were uppermost in her mind, the whereabouts of her husband and those of her son. She fully believed that the baby was aboard the Kincaid, provided that he still lived, but whether Tarzan had been permitted to live after having been lured aboard the evil craft she could not guess. She knew, of course, the deep hatred that the Russian felt for the Englishman, and she could think of but one reason of having him brought aboard the ship, to dispatch him in comparative safety in revenge for his having thwarted Rokoff's pet schemes, and for having been at last the means of landing him in a French prison. Tarzan, on his part, lay in the darkness of his cell, ignorant of the fact that his wife was a prisoner in the cabin almost above his head. The same Swede that served Jane brought his meals to him, but, though on several occasions Tarzan had tried to draw the men into conversation, he had been unsuccessful. He had hoped to learn to this fellow whether his little son was aboard the Kincaid, but to every question upon this or kindred subjects the fellow returned but one reply. I dank it blow purty, soon purty hard. So after several attempts, Tarzan gave it up. For weeks that seemed months to the two prisoners, the little steamer forged on they knew not where. Once the Kincaid stopped to coal, only immediately to take up the seemingly interminable voyage. Rokoff had visited Jane Clayton but once since he had locked her in the tiny cabin. He had come gaunt and hollow-eyed from a long seas of seasickness. The object of his visit was to obtain from her her personal check for a large sum in return for a guarantee of her personal safety in return to England. "'When you set me down safely in any civilized port, together with my son and my husband,' she replied, "'I will pay you in gold twice the amount you ask. But until then you shall not have a cent, nor the promise of a cent, under any other conditions.' "'You will give me the check I ask,' he replied with a snarl, "'or neither you, nor your child, nor your husband will ever again set foot within any port, civilized or otherwise.' "'I would not trust you,' she replied. "'What guarantee have I that you would not take my money and then do as you please with me and mine, regardless of your promise?' "'I think you will do as I bid,' he said, turning to leave the cabin. "'Remember that I have your son.' If you chance to hear the agonized wail of a tortured child, it may console you to reflect 
"'that it is because of your stubbornness "'that the baby suffers, "'and that it is your baby.' "'You would not do it!' cried the girl. "'You would not, could not be so fiendishly cruel.' "'It is not that I am cruel, but you,' he returned. "'For you permit the paltry sum of money "'to stand between your baby and immunity from suffering.' "'The end of it was that Jane Clayton "'wrote out a check of large denomination "'and handed it to Nicholas Rokoff, "'who left her cabin with a grin of satisfaction upon his lips. "'The following day the hatch was removed from Tarzan's cell,' and as he looked up he saw Polvich's head framed in the square of light above him. "'Come up,' commanded the Russian, "'but bear in mind that you will be shot "'if you make a single move to attack me "'or any other aboard the ship.' The ape-man swung himself lightly to the deck. About him, but at a respectful distance, stood a half-dozen sailors armed with rifles and revolvers. Facing him was Polvich. Tarzan looked about for Rokoff, who he felt sure must be aboard, but there was no sign of him. "'Lord Greystoke,' commenced the Russian, "'by your continued and wanton interference with Monsieur Rokoff and his plans, "'you have at last brought yourself and your family to this unfortunate extremity. "'You have only yourself to thank. "'As you may imagine, it has cost Monsieur Rokoff a large amount of money to finance this expedition, "'and as you are the sole cause of it, he naturally looks to you for reimbursement. "'Further, I may say that only by meeting Monsieur Rokoff's just demands "'may you avert the most unpleasant consequences to your wife and child.' "'and at the same time retain your own life "'and regain your liberty.' "'What is the amount?' asked Tarzan. "'And what assurance have I "'that you will live up to your end of the agreement? "'I have little reason to trust two such scoundrels "'as you and Rokoff, you know.' "'The Russian flushed. "'You are in no position to deliver insults,' he said. "'You have no assurance that we will live up to our agreement "'other than my word.' "'but you have before you the insurance "'that we can make short work of you "'if you do not write out the check we demand. "'Unless you are a greater fool than I imagine, "'you should know that there is nothing "'that would give us greater pleasure "'than to order these men to fire. "'That we do not is because we have other plans "'for punishing you that would be entirely upset by your death.' "'Answer one question,' said Tarzan. "'Is my son on board this ship?' "'No,' replied Alexis Povich. "'Your son is quite safe elsewhere.' "'Nor will he be killed, unless you refuse to accede to our fair demands. "'If it becomes necessary to kill you, there will be no reason for not killing the child, "'since with you gone, the one whom we wish to punish through the boy will be gone, "'and he will then be to us only a constant source of danger and embarrassment. "'You see, therefore, that you may only save the life of your son by saving your own, "'and you can only save your own by giving us the check we ask.' "'Very well,' replied Tarzan for he knew that he could trust them to carry out any sinister threat that Polvich had made, and there was a bare chance that by conceding their demands he might save the boy. That they would permit him to live after he had appended his name to the check never occurred to him as being within the realms of probability, but he was determined to give them such a battle as they would never forget, and possibly to take Polvich with him into eternity. He was only sorry that it was not Rokoff. He took his pocket checkbook and fountain pen from his pocket, "'What is the amount?' he asked. Povich named an enormous sum. Tarzan could scarce restrain a smile. Their very cupidity was to prove the means of their undoing, in the manner of the ransom, at least. Purposely he hesitated and haggled over the amount, but Povich was obdurate. Presently the ape-man wrote out his check for a larger sum than stood to his credit at the bank. As he turned to hand the worthless slip of paper to the Russian, his glance chanced to pass across the starboard bow of the Kincaid, to his surprise he saw that the ship lay within a hundred yards of land, 
Almost down to the water's edge ran a dense tropical jungle, and behind was a higher land clothed in forest. Polvich noted the direction of his gaze. "'You are to be set at liberty here,' he said. Tarzan's plan for immediate physical revenge upon the Russian vanished. He thought the land before him the mainland of Africa, and he knew that should they liberate him here he could doubtless find his way to civilization with comparative ease. Polvich took the check. "'Remove your clothing,' he said to the ape-man. "'Here you will not need it.' Tarzan demurred. Polvich pointed to the armed sailors. Then the Englishman slowly divested himself of his clothing. A boat was lowered, and still heavily guarded. The ape-man was rowed ashore. Half an hour later the sailors had returned to the Kincaid, and the steamer was slowly getting under way. As Tarzan stood upon the narrow strip of beach watching the departure of the vessel, he saw a figure appear at the rail and call aloud to attract his attention. The ape-man had been about to read a note that one of the sailors had handed him as the small boat that bore him to the shore was on the point of returning to the steamer, but at the hail from the vessel's deck he looked up. He saw a black-bearded man who laughed at him in derision as he held high above his head the figure of a little child. Tarzan half-started as though to rush through the surf and strike out for the already moving steamer, but realizing the futility of so rash an act, he halted at the water's edge. Thus he stood, his gaze riveted upon the Kincaid until it disappeared beyond a projecting promontory of the coast. From the jungle at his back, fierce bloodshot eyes glared from beneath shaggy overhanging brows upon him. Little monkeys in the treetops chattered and scolded, and from the distance of the inland forest came the scream of a leopard. But still John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, stood deaf and unseen, "'suffering the pangs of keen regret for the opportunity that he had wasted "'because he had been so gullible as to place credence "'in a single statement of the first lieutenant of his arch-enemy. "'I have at least,' he thought, "'one consolation, the knowledge that Jane is safe in London. "'Thank heaven she, too, did not fall into the clutches of those villains.' "'Behind him the hairy thing whose evil eyes had been watching him "'as a cat watches a mouse was creeping stealthily toward him. "'Where were the trained senses of the savage ape-man?' Where was the acute hearing? Where was the uncanny sense of scent? Join us for chapters 3 and 4 next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We appreciate reviews, especially from you Apple listeners, for 1001 Stories for the Road. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.